So I, I have some questions from uh, the earlier um, part of the the talks, um, and and a couple for Sue, one of which might just be a yes/no question. Uh, the yes/no question is: Has oxytocin been measured across ethnic groups? And I'll let you say yes, no to that. But also, uh, has research shown the increased release of oxytocin in fathers attending childbirth? Uh, the ethnic group question, I, my memory would only think of one, which is African-American, and it was a pain sensitivity study. Not good enough to answer your question. There is a huge issue around the measurement of oxytocin. (laughs) Um, Many questions remain. The hormone is difficult to measure, much more so than anyone anticipated. And so almost every question you're going to ask me about things that involve measurement either hasn't been done or hasn't been done well. (laughs) Okay. Now, the second question was, that, that was too long an answer. Sorry. The answer is, can you room? Yeah, oh, no. Increased release of oxytocin in fathers attending childbirth. I can't think of any where there's actually attending childbirth. There are stimulation studies where fathers are measured with the babies, and they do release oxytocin, at least in Israel. Okay. <laughs> And there might be others I can't remember. I, it, it's very difficult to get into people's lives to do these studies that we'd like to all know, you know, who's going to show up at the birth. And with all the IRB requirements, it's, it's pretty daunting. Thank you. And, and a question that I think is for Kim, uh, but Mel might also want to weigh in on this. So, Kim... Um, Can anyone comment on the role of attachment styles, for example, avoidant, anxious, et cetera, in the evolution of primate and human culture? So you can talk about chimpanzees, Kim. And maybe, Mel, do you want to climb in? I actually did a study um, with chimpanzees that were nursery-raised and did find some were insecurely attached to their favorite human caregiver. Um, In terms of... Uh, infants and their mothers, I might argue that very, very, very few chimpanzee infants are um, insecurely attached to their mothers. But I don't have very much data to support that. Uh, We have just done, um, with a graduate student at uh, Georgia Tech, a follow-up study on infants that from the nursery studies were found to not be well attached to their favorite caregiver, to have dysfunctional attachment. And those infants that are classified with dysfunctional attachment, disorganized attachment, seem to have greater number of health problems as adults. Uh, So there seems to be strong parallels in how well the attachment system's functioning and the long-term effects in chimpanzees as in humans. but these were nursery-raised chimpanzees, so their attachment systems are already somewhat different than chimpanzees raised by their biological mothers. Thank you. Yep. 
So for, for those who don't know, the attachment uh, categories are based on reunion behavior in the Ainsworth uh, strange situation that I showed some data from. So the baby is left alone by, by herself or with a stranger, and then when, when the mother comes back, depending on the baby acts, and some babies just go right to the mother and, and some uh, uh, avoid the mother and some show ambivalence, and, and the, these are the, the categories that the, um, the disciples of, of, uh, of Mary Ainsworth came up with, um, and they're, they're reproducible. If, if people are trained and watch videotapes. So the question is, uh, what, what, what would this mean for human evolution? The, 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 my answer is I don't think that this has ever been done uh, well enough in uh, hunting and gathering societies. Uh, I don't know about, uh, about non-human. Um, I don't know if it would come out the same way. But based on, on the fact that, that um, secure attachment, which is the baby just... You know, goes to the mother and greets, and, and doesn't become you know extremely clingy. Uh, that 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 or is is um, related or predictable from the sensitivity of 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 the mother's response or whatever the caregiver, whoever the caregiver is in in the home setting before the testing is is done, as the baby is uh, is developing. Uh, cer- certainly, the Kung and most hunter gatherers that I've ever heard about um, have uh, are on the high on the high end of, of of sensitive responding on the part of the mother and other caregivers. So I guess I would have to predict that uh, there would be very few babies that would not be securely attached. But that's and that and that's the way. Uh, in my view, it's, it's it's a big part of the way humans got through the the challenges of our evolution. So, um, quite, please, Barry, um, <laughs> rise up. Was was Alan nursing in a seventy year old postmenopausal woman primarily a comfort measure, or did the act of lactation? Occur. I might, you might not be able to answer that, but we want to have a go. Uh, seventy-year-old. Oh, seventy-year-old. Yes, I mean that. Uh, again, my my wife is the one who worked with this. They have uh, field sort of tests of whether or not you have milk, and she had them express. And that, I mean, that seventy-year-olds did not. But but uh, you know, forty-five to sixty-five. 68, I mean, did have um, milk and milk with fat. And so. This is a follow on for Katie. Who, where are you, Katie? Oh, there you are. Uh, which is, um, I don't know whether you can answer this, but give it a shot. How <laughs> do postmenopausal women allopathically, but the, anyway, what, by whatever means, um, actually produce milk? Yeah, so that's a that's a really um, that's a really good question, and it's something that I've been wanting to talk to Barry about because uh, relactation in um, in post reproductive women is partly going to be an artifact that humans have post reproductive females in, in substantial numbers, but how the 
how the hormonal cascades that allow them to synthesize milk when they haven't gone through pregnancy is is really, really interesting. And I think in part, there's still an open question in terms of how much milk the mammary gland is synthesizing. So yes, they do have milk present, but in experimental work um, with animals and then observational work with humans, it's shown that relactation milk um, or induced lactation um, in the case of adoption and things like that generally is not sufficient to maintain infant growth velocity. And so those mothers oftentimes are supplementing with formula or other foods. And so there seems to be some open question in in terms of milk production in the absence of having gestated and, and reared their own infant recently. Can't go Okay, but you need the microphone. Okay, but yeah, don't go anywhere. Um, Here's a question. I don't know if you you know the answer, but what do you think would be the answer in terms of milk composition for women caring fraternal twins? Right. (laughs) Okay, so this is this is a good one. Um, In terms of how infant, so we know we know some some really nice work by Forsyth and others in agricultural animal species that that when there's twins, the larger fetal placental unit um, increases mammary gland development during pregnancy, and those mothers are able to make a lot more milk to support those twins. But what that means is that there's lots of data potentially out there where they, they can empirically ask this question quite quickly, but nobody's published it. So there's a couple different things that could be happening in terms of how the fetuses are affecting the mammary. So there could be something of a washout effect where you have kind of a, a an intermediate set point in that mammary gland that's that's between a male and a female set point. Um, it could be that it, it oscillates between a female or male optima um, in part because of the hormones they're releasing during fetal life. And, and it's an open question right now. Okay, you might not be able to go yet. <laughs> this is actually to you and Barry. Um, and that is, uh, can you think of any immunological benefits to uh, for alum, alum maternal nursing? So I, I hear closer, but I, I know Barry will have some things to add to this. Um, and absolutely, so we know that the immunofactors that are present in milk are going to reflect the exposure history of the aloe mother or the aloe maternal lactator. And when that exposure history is different between the infant's own mother, they're basically getting a bonus dose of um, immune factors for other things that their mother may not have encountered. And this becomes really, really interesting in that Barry's work shows that that paternal grandmothers are quite involved in allo-maternal nursing. And so we'd expect a mother to have inherited antibodies that have been vertically transmitted between from her own mother, right? So you have that maternal lineage, but now you're getting an even an additional additive lineage that seems to be something that's not found among other animals. There are actually more, but I'll let you go. <laughs> um, Kristen, can you talk about the common question I know that you get a lot, and that is, why did women's fertility drop in the first place at menopause? Why does it occur? Why, why didn't it just prolong with the prolonged life cycle? Right. Well, cl- well clearly, I haven't been able to persuade um, a lot of my colleagues, but I, w- I was trying to get you guys on the bus, that if we actually look at the living hominids, if we look across the great apes, Fertility ends at about the same age in all of us. This is a feature that goes with being the kind of animal we are. And what changed in our lineage was 
it looks like, slower aging and a lot of the rest of the physiology with ovarian aging not changing. And we have a few data sets that, you know, are, are quite consistent with that. Again, fertility, if, if, it's, if you can manage to keep a, a, a female chimpanzee alive, and even in captivity, it's difficult into, into her 40s. It, that's, in general, they're really old females. Uh, but it is possible to keep them alive, and they um, go through menopause. And, and in the wild, uh, ages again at last birth, I could show you figures. The few females who are able, who are still robust enough to be alive then, are um, having their last births uh, in their early 40s. So this thing about having last births in the 40s seems to be the deal for uh, us. But weird, the thing that's different about us is that we, you know, here I am, we are still able to walk and chew gum and so on, all this stuff after menopause. We, as I said, in this Hadza, and, and Hilly's data shows this as well, in, in human populations, if you make it to adulthood and you're, and you're female, your chances of living beyond that are way better than even. So if, if I can persuade you that that's what happened, the, the kind of modeling that we've been doing shows that if it's the case that we've got this conserved pattern of when fertility ends, you know, clearly it can change. If, if you're a macaque, you go through menopause at 25. So it's different in the, in the, in the great apes, but it's the same in all the living great apes, including, including us. What's different is the other stuff. And grandmothering could account for what actually was behind this shift in, in the way we age and a lot of the rest of our, our physiology. So I, I, if, I, does that sound like I'm avoiding the question? My, I'm trying to suggest that we have a long history of posing the question the wrong way for good reason. George Williams, I should probably stop here, but I can rant about this for hours. <laughs> George Williams, in his 57 paper, so important in laying out a basic way of thinking about aging and how in the world, you know, given uh, that, that natural selection ought generally to favor anything that increases, you know, survival and reproduction, why is aging a thing that we see in, in all kinds of living organisms? You know, not just us, but... You had a, maybe a puppy when you were a little kid, and that dog got old and died before you were even an adult. That this aging thing is a thing that is a characteristic of being certain kinds of animals. You know, there are a few living things that don't age, but that's very rare. Uh, but, but Williams, in his um, 57 paper, said... Well, uh, yes, I, here are the uh, ways we can understand why natural selection is going to result in aging as the force of selection is necessarily going to decline across adulthood. It's going to mean that um, the, the things that, are fav- that give you a greater chance of being productive when you're young, even if there's a cost later, they're going to be favored and things that impose a cost later uh, are, are going to be disfavored, um, even if uh, the, the providing advantage later on are going to be disfavored if they impose a cost early. And then he said, 
uh, okay, so this uh, theory suggests that there should never be such a thing as post-reproductive period in the lifespan of the normal lifespan of any living thing. What about women? And then he talked about menopause in a way that was really interesting and persuasive and said, well, you know, there's look at our evolution. Wenda started out talking about all the difficulties with birth. If we look at what was happening, birth got more difficult. And uh, as that was happening, we had kids that were more dependent. That ought to mean that if there was any tendency maybe not to have that last risky baby because it might kill you, and if it did, the kid would die too. So better not to do that uh, and to stop early. So this view that menopause is, quote, stopping early is, uh, has fueled a lot of work on the question. And, and I'm, I'm arguing that if we look at the data from the perspective that seems to really have legs, we don't stop early. We actually don't stop early. We, 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 are, we're, we stop at, at the age that is, is characteristic of the radiation we're part of. Sorry for the sermon. <laughs> you all want to hear from, some more from her? Yeah. Let's hear some more from her. So here's, here's a, another common question. If it's so great for humans, why don't chimpanzees and gorillas have grandmas? Right. Right, yes. So I, I think I gave this very short shrift, but it, here, Hilly and I are almost on, on the same page. The, the kind of argument that, that, that my colleagues and I have been favoring for a long time is an ecological one, that, that the sorts of circumstances that, that characterized the, uh, what, what our uh, ancestors were facing and what, what gave rise to the evolution of our genus was one in which certain kinds of foods with these spreading savannas were becoming less available. And if moms stayed in those environments, then there's the problem. There are things that are really productive that you could acquire, but little kids can't do it. So you could follow the forest and stay chimpanzee or gorilla and and all those things, but if you stayed in the other environments, then those little kids would have to have help. And, And if that starts to happen, then this window opens for non-maternal contributions. It's not just mother's milk anymore. It's something else. And that's an opportunity for older females whose fertility is ending to make this novel contribution to their fitness. And, and models, you know, uh, plenty of models <laughs> show that if that's the case it's why indeterminate growers age so much more slowly if there's something you can do later in life that's going to enhance your fitness then there's a real bonus on getting there and and so aging slows and and grandmothering is a thing that you can do for your fitness if you live long enough you can't, there's nothing that a chimp, uh, now I have to retract that. Actually, we do, we do have anecdotal examples in chimpanzees of, of grandmothers, grandmothers having important effects on, on the welfare of their daughters. But, but what's happening in general in chimpanzees is the kinds of foods everybody's eating, the juveniles can handle on their own. And, of, of course, if you're a gorilla, it's the salad bowl. The juveniles can handle on their own. And so the sort of environment in which uh, resources that really pay off if you 
can afford to live on them, that's the cradle of our genus. That's what was happening in the Playa Pleistocene in, in, in ancient Africa, and that's, that's where we come from. Can you do one more? <laughs> Sorry, I didn't write these. Um, but the question is, in a lot of these discussions of grandparenting, uh, does it matter whether it's the maternal grandmother or the paternal grandmother? Right, well, we, we saw lots of data in which it does, and, and this is so interesting how variable this is, how, you know, in some circumstances, paternal grandmothers can actually be harmful. Uh, so these data sets really get to be interesting, and all of this depends on, this, on the socioecology, just like mothers can be dangerous, as, as, as Sarah was laying before us. Um, it, it depends on what... What, uh, what the allocation problems are. Um, I, it is of interest, certainly to me and my collaborators, in, in trying to build some of these models that, that, the, that the, the Peter Kim's agent-based model that I was talking about does not restrict helpful grandmothers to only helping their daughter's offspring. It does not make that restriction and grandmothering takes off in, in the way that I showed you. So, yes, I, I think the answer is it does seem to matter. The way it matters varies with socioecology. There's this fascinating stuff suggesting that, that the X chromosome makes a difference. So it's pattern data set suggesting where there are historical data in these populations that, that, that a woman um, passes on her... X chromosome to both her sons and her daughters, her daughters' daughters are going to get that chromosome because they get it from their mom. Her sons' sons are going to get a Y from their dad, so they have nothing, no um, X chromosome from their grandmother. And, and it's possible to, to order the grandchildren in terms of their the sex of the linking parent and the sex of the grandchild in terms of the probability of whether they share an X. And it looks like there is a correlation between the kind of effect grandmothers have on the survival of those grandchildren. I'm still astonished at that result um, and whether there's some other reason that we haven't really figured out why it shows up. But I, the short answer is, yes, it does seem to matter, and it, and it depends on the socioecology. Thank you. You can sit down now. <laughs> um, I've got a question for Sarah. Um, they, kind of a couple of questions. Maybe you can address both of them. Um, are you willing to speculate about when cooperative breeding really began and took off in humans, and do you think it's linked with the theory of some aspects of the theory of mind? Yes, I think it's linked to aspects of the theory of mind. Other, I'm going to start with the second one first. Other chimpanzees, other, other apes have rudimentary theory of mind, for sure. Uh, it's a question of having it expressed more in humans. The first question is much harder. Uh, when do I think cooperative breeding first emerged in the hominin line? Um, very conservatively, in a 2009 book, Mothers and Others, The Evolutionary Origins of Mutual Understanding, I put it at 1.8 million years. 
just because I thought the proposal at that time was already outrageous enough that I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't push my luck. Um, but um, there, there are people who would push it back further. Um, but what I want to add is that one reason I like the notion of hominins adopting cooperative breeding and the idea that this was an important component in, quote, becoming human, uh, is that you don't need to invoke any kind of special circumstance. You don't have to think that we are exceptional in that sense, because really many, many species, although it's an uncommon breeding system, many species have evolved breeding systems where you have alloparental care and provisioning in addition to maternal care or parental care. Um, about 10% of the species of birds that are out there, of 10,000 species of birds, have cooperative breeding. Um, the figure you hear for humans is 3%. It's probably higher. Um, there's lots of cooperative breeding out there. And what really interests me is that work by Jets and Rubenstein and some of the other ornithologists, a lot of our theories about cooperative breeding come from ornithology, but have shown that species, bird species, are more likely to evolve cooperative breeding if they're living in savanna environments with very fluctuating ecological systems, in particular fluctuating rainfall and fluctuating food resources, which, of course, is precisely, if you heard Richard Potts talking at CARTA a few sessions ago, is precisely uh, the set of ecological circumstances we're, that were weighing very heavily on our early Pleistocene ancestors. Uh, extraordinary fluctuations in rainfall, very unpredictable food resources, periods of kind of unpredictable famine. Uh, this is the kind of thing that gives you cooperative breeding. And Rubenstein's work, uh, he started out looking at um, uh, savanna starlings and um, looking at them in the desert and in the forest and in the savannas. And the ones that evolved cooperative breeding were all the savanna dwellers. Cooperative breeding in a, uh, a kind of species with mixed hunting and gathering, which is what humans have, also what species like. There are some other cooperatively breeding primates, and they're in the, the subfamily Calatricidae, these 35 species of marmosets and tamarins. They, too, are voracious predators who combine that with um, extractive foraging. They have a very human... There's a long list of traits in common between these tiny little small-brained South American monkeys and humans. Um, in other words, you don't need big brains to become a cooperative breeder, um, but you do need to be in a certain, with a certain history of sociality in a certain kind of ecosystem, and humans fit the bill pretty well. And then this one is for Sue, but I think a lot of uh, the speakers could actually address this. Um, it seems to me that a lot of our um, evolved capacities, however you want to think about this, including the availability of oxytocin, this is why it's directed to Sue, 
um, for bonding from mother-infant relationships, father-infant relationships, and so on. It seems like a lot of these are really being challenged by contemporary, at least U.S., uh, cultural changes um, where babies are separated at birth and uh, all the things that we're so familiar with. What would you be willing to speculate about the future of uh, particularly uh, parents and, uh, and, other, and people raising uh, children and so on in, in context of this current? You sort of answered the question for me. I believe we are in the largest uncontrolled experiment in human history is going on today. It really started about 100 years ago, and it picked up momentum couple of times in recent times. We are, we've changed the birth practices. We no longer, 50% of the babies born in the United States are born through induction or augmentation with oxytocin. This has consequences for the offspring and probably the mother. One-third of the babies, I hate to be so U.S.-based, but that's where I know the numbers, one-third of the babies born right now are C-sections, uh, we are just gone wild. We've, of course, got we have reproductive technology. We have no idea of the consequences of in vitro fertilization or almost anything we're doing. In some ways, there are two, I think, reasons for this. One is that we've found out how to do stuff, and so why not? Okay? The other is that there are separations of disciplines. And those separations have allowed us to move forward. So obstetrics works almost independently of pediatrics, which has, is these two don't even hardly inform each other. There's a new fetal medicine. There are people trying to get into that space. But the baby, the minute it's born, it's handed to one kind of doctor. And whatever was done by the guy or woman beforehand is sort of irrelevant. I mean, I can. You, this is the thing I am most concerned about right now in the world. We are taking babies out of their uh, microbiome by C-sections. We are changing them in that way. And almost everything, when anyone looks carefully, they find that they have made long-term changes, sometimes subtle. But it's, it is the human, in my opinion... <laughs> has a lot of ability to be variable, to respond very adaptively. We, we are here in part because of this amazing capacity to adapt to multiple kinds of environments. So we will not be defeated by these changes, but we will be changed. All right. Thank you all for, for uh, staying through this uh, wonderful symposium. It's, it's my role to call it to an end, and um, I'd like to start by giving a big thanks to Winda and Kristen for putting together a remarkable uh, group of people who come from dis- different disciplines and gave us a flavor of of the uh, state of their art. And I think we're walking away with a... It was a great ending, by the way, Sue, the way you sort of <laughs> pulled this together there. But it did, it did bring it together, and I think we're walking away with a, a better sense of the importance of childhood from, from many different directions and in um, and using many different species and many, many different uh, uh, organisms in order to get a, an insight into it. But it does feel like we're at the beginning of this area, even though it's, it feels like we've been thinking about this for a long time. It's, it's coming together in, some, in a coherent way that I think is going to be very, uh, very exciting for the future. So first of all, I want to thank you two for putting together a terrific program. And we
the second uh, thing I get to thank is the people that have have uh, have supported this carta for so many years now, and and uh, we have Jim Handelman here from the Mathers Foundation, Annette Merrill Smith, and I, I don't know if Rita's still here or not, but uh, and and others. And I, I while they have been strong supporters for some period of time. I would encourage others that have the capacity to support CARTA, and we want to keep this thing going. We want your resources, your foot on the ground, be here and uh, contribute and give good ideas for for next meetings. So thanks thanks very much to the supporters for keeping us going. And, and, and finally, I just want to thank the rest of the CARTA organization, the people that are here and have uh, been with us for, the very, for a very long time, and particularly Lyndon Nelson, who's really done a great job at organizing this meeting. And, and with that, I want to thank you all and have a, have a wonderful day. Bye.